This morning, uh, we're launching into the next chapter and following Jesus from cradle to grave. We're going to unpack Jesus' sh- shortest sermon ever. In fact, I would argue you could barely call what he's about to do a sermon. It was really only a sentence. I chose this topic this morning, hoping, like I'm sure many of you do every week, that I might take some inspiration from Jesus in the area of sermon length. I chose this topic. All right, settle down. (laughs) I chose this topic this morning inspired by the Chester police from last weekend. Wondering if it's possible to not back up Route 24 in both directions on Sunday morning. And so we are following Jesus, somewhat literally, I think somewhat literally, step by step from uh, the cradle, which we celebrated on Christmas Eve together, to the grave, which we'll celebrate, well, we'll we'll reminisce about on Good Friday and, and of course, his resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. And the goal has been to discover, or maybe rediscover, depending on, on where you are with Jesus, who he really is. And what I hope is happening, that I know is happening for me, is I hope that together we're discovering he's not actually who most of us think he is. And in fact, I would argue that he is not only not who we think he is, he is often not who we want him to be. And I'm telling you, you're going to see that so clearly this morning. And yet, if we come with open minds, you know, if we take all of the filters and the preconceived notions out and open hearts, humble hearts, I think we can discover that the real Jesus of Nazareth, this historic figure, his life, his message, it's even greater by far than you could ever imagine. But if we've learned anything so far in the couple weeks of our journey, it's this, and and, and don't mistake it, the real Jesus is very, very easy to miss. It's what John the Baptist warned about, and it's what most people did then and do today. So let's get right at it. We're going to jump back in. We've been tracking these steps. There's the map we've been using a little bit. If you recall, um, you see number four over here. This is where Jesus um, kind, of, kind of first walked up, came out in a sense, as an adult into ministry. Actually, not even in ministry. just made himself known when he walked um, to, uh, from up north, from his home in Nazareth, all the way down here to the Dead Sea, that, the River Jordan that runs into the Dead Sea, and he was baptized by John the Baptist. Now, if you remember, right, John the Baptist had a pretty controversial message. It was about a coming king in a brand new upside-down kingdom. He, he was telling people how to prepare to meet your maker. That's what we looked at week one, right? How to prepare for the end times. And I would argue it was not what anyone would have expected then or now. His uh, message was essentially, here's how you prepare for the end of, of, uh, of the, this age as we know it, at least uh, the religious age that they were in, share your underwear. Kind of what he said. You can go check it out if you missed it. Last week we watched as Jesus seemingly waited in line out there at the River Jordan with the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes to be baptized by John. And I need to repeat that because it was stunning. Not to baptize John, but to to lower himself, to submit in a very real and public way to being baptized by John for what John said was the remission of sin. Sin which Jesus had not committed nor would ever commit. And we discovered an essential, misunderstood message of Jesus that 
Jesus is not here merely to be our example or our teacher or our guide or the standard. Jesus came to exchange places with us, to be our substitute, to swap out the curse that we bear and are under for his blessing. And as we looked at last week, his identification with us wasn't just in the waters of baptism, but in the wilderness of temptation, which for Jesus, just like for us, so often follows our greatest spiritual triumphs. We looked around last week, right, and we discovered that what sits at the root of all of the temptations, which we so often fall for and wind up ruining our lives, is one word. It's that word, if. If you missed it, super important, check it out. Because Jesus, right, if he is not just our teacher but our substitute, there has to be no, quote, ifs, ands, and buts allowed in our minds. That voice in our head has to go away in terms of where we stand with God. So today I want to start week three with a controversial statement. Are you ready? You won't like it. Jesus did not come for everybody. I know the most famous verse in the Bible. You'll likely see two things today as you go home and watch the football games. The first is just an incessant, gratuitous, multiple shots of Taylor Swift in a luxury box acting awkward. I apologize to all of the Swifties. The second thing you will see today likely is somebody holding up the sign, John 3.16. Most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I want you to know as your pastor, I am here to tell you that I believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures and this statement is absolutely true. God loves the entire world, the whole world. And by the way, you need to understand that that was an incredibly controversial statement in Jesus' day because Jesus' people thought that God only loved them, the Jewish people. It was statements like this that would get Jesus crucified. It's not controversial for you and I to hear it. We're used to it. It was earth-shaking back then. Now, if we get through it, as I hope, as, uh, excuse me, if we get it, as I hope you will this morning, God's love of the whole world should still be controversial to you. Yes, he sent his son for the whole world, but he did so in much the same way the school bus now in my neighborhood seems to be sent to all the children. I don't know if you've noticed this. There's something that has changed since I was a little kid getting on the bus. The school bus is there. It's offered for everyone, but only the people willing to get on it are the people... Uh, the people whose parents aren't willing to drive them. I get stuck behind the school bus in my neighborhood. It stops at multiple stops. There's no one there. Too much to my frustration, it sits and waits as if someone might come. But nobody gets on. My wife is a school nurse, and she tells me the line of parents dropping off their kids at school is like around the block every morning. Nobody's getting on the bus. Now, when I, when I was a child, and my mother's watching this morning, and so... Mom, forgive me for sharing this story, but when I was a kid, missing the bus was the unforgivable sin. <laughs> Am I right? Any of you of a, of a different generation? You did not go home and say, Mom, I missed the bus. The thought of walking to school seemed more pleasant than going home and telling my mother, who had three younger children, by the way, now you need to get them all dressed, put them in the car, and drive me to school. Nobody seems to take the bus anymore. You see, anybody can get on the bus, but it, it's not for people with cars and, and who want to drive themselves. 
Let me show you what I mean. But let me make one more, perhaps even more controversial statement. If you didn't like the last one, you really won't like this one. If you're here, and I'm not trying to be controversial. I hope to show you that. In fact, I, I loathe when people try to do that with the scriptures. I, I think you'll see th these truths in the scriptures this morning. I want to make one more controversial statement, though. If you're here this morning in church, you're a church person, and you go to church, you live in Mendham, New Jersey, or in the towns surrounding it, there is an incremental chance for you, a very real danger for you and for me, that Jesus might not have come for any of us. There's a very real danger here. You could miss him. Let me show you what I mean. Back to our story. Luke tells us that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, the same Spirit that had, had come upon him after baptism, which led him into the wilderness of the temptation, now leads Jesus back north, back up towards his hometown. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Can we pop the big map up up there? And so you see the Dead Sea down at the bottom where Jesus had been ministering, where a lot of the temptations took place. Jerusalem is off to the left there in the land of Judea. Jesus now travels all the way back north up to right around the western side of the Sea of Galilee up there. That area, in that area, was a city, an area called Capernaum. Capernaum was on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And as we're going to see in the coming weeks, right, Capernaum for Jesus becomes kind of like a second home. Many of his miracles take place here. He calls his first disciples. We'll see that next week. He calls his disciples there. And as Luke reports, Jesus is becoming a pretty big deal in Capernaum. He's killing it up there. Like they, they, like they love him in Capernaum, right? He's really making a name for himself. But for some reason, we don't know why, Luke says that he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. You don't need to put the map up. But Nazareth is just to further west and south. So he kind of leaves the, the Sea of Galilee area, and he travels back to his hometown. We don't know why. Maybe he wanted to see Mary and Joseph. Maybe he wanted to hang out with his, his brothers. I, I don't know. But I mean... It, if you enter the, 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 the story, right, you, you've got a picture. It's kind of a cool thought. Jesus is heading from Capernaum. He's going back to his hometown. And, and what do towns do when, when they're the home of celebrities? They put signs up on roads, right? Home of. Can you picture Jesus kind of making his way back to Nazareth, passing a sign? Nazareth, home of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And in comes their favorite son. Nazareth feels about Jesus the same way every hometown does about their favorite sons who've made it big, right? There's so much pride. There's so much hope. This is our, this is our boy. I mean, you also need to understand Nazareth, pre-Jesus, Nazareth had a bad rap. Nathaniel, he was going to go on to be uh, one of Jesus's yet-to-be-called disciples. We'll, we'll see that next week. When he first, when Nathaniel first hears that this so-called Messiah is from Nazareth, right? Philip, his friend Philip, tells him, "I found, I found the Messiah." This is what Nathaniel goes, "Nazareth? Can anything good come from there?" And so the hopes of all of Nazareth are resting on their hometown hero. Luke goes on. He, he says, he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as it was his custom, 
Take a note, people, Jesus went to church every week. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, back to the story, right? You would imagine, right, Jesus now goes into the synagogue. There, he goes in with no small amount of fanfare. Not only is he heading home, but he's heading to their place of worship, right? Around which their faith, and in and, and, and first century Israel, around which their very lives centered, he goes in as the hometown hero rabbi with a very big reputation. And just like at every gathering in the synagogue, what would happen every, every time they gathered? It was tradition. The teacher would read from the scriptures, and then after the reading, he would sit down, he would put them back, he would sit down, and he would be begin to expand and explain the text to the, the crowd that had gathered. And so Jesus walks in, and he's given the book of the ancient Jewish prophet Isaiah. This book is in your Old Testament. You could go home. This is actually wild to think about. You could go home this afternoon and read it, too. Right? That's pretty cool to think about. But the same book that Jesus was handed is one that's sitting on your coffee table. Jesus takes the scroll, and he goes to a portion of the prophecy that's dealing with, it's describing what it's going to be like when the long-awaited Savior, the Messiah of the Jewish people and the Jewish nation, appears. Now, everyone, in the audience knows this passage because everyone in the audience has been waiting for the Savior. The room is filled with people whose families for generation, generation after generation, they had been nothing but footstools for conquering empires from the Egyptians to the Babylonians to the Romans. All of their people had just been abused and terrorized, their land taken, their, their women taken. Mothers and fathers, when they would put their children to bed at night, in the stillness of the evening, over the centuries, most of the time as slaves, they would tell their children, they, they would read the, these kind of passages, and they would say to their children as they read them, one day, though, my son, one day, little girl, it's not going to be like this anymore. The Savior is coming. One day, he'll come. They were waiting and waiting and waiting for this promised day of victory. And, and, and now don't miss the messianic language here. Again, because my mom and dad didn't put me to bed reading me messianic texts and telling me, just wait, wait one day, it's all going to change. It goes over our head. But the language is the same. You see it in other places that speak about what happens when God draws near to his people, what they should expect from the coming Savior. Here, here's the kind of list. The blind will see, the deaf will hear. The sick are healed, the slaves are freed, and over and over you always see the same thing. Good news is proclaimed to the poor. And so Matthew tells us that Jesus' trip back home from the south, Matthew says that what made Jesus leave um, the area down by the Jordan and return back up to Capernaum was that John the Baptist had been arrested. You're going to see in the coming couple of weeks, right, that John, we're going to jump ahead in the story just because I want to show you something. John winds up in prison, and he's on the verge of having his head removed from his body, which, by the way, he eventually would. John, right, he, he's sitting in prison. He's hearing about all of these stories about Jesus and Capernaum and other areas, right? And, and John, after all of the voice crying in the wilderness stuff, even John begins to wonder if Jesus is who he thought he is. 
Because all of a sudden, John started to go, he's not coming for me. That Jesus was not going to be for John what John wanted him to be. And so John, John was a big deal, right? Hundreds of thousands of people going out to see John. John goes, I might have missed him. And so John sends a bunch of his disciples out to ask Jesus, are you who I thought you were? Are you who I proclaimed you to be? And how does Jesus respond? Jesus replied, I want you to go back and report to John what you hear and see. Here it is again. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news, here it is again, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. The same list of characteristics of what happens when God draws near. And then Jesus adds a cryptic warning to John. And I think to people like you and I who have the potential to miss Jesus too, when he, he will not, he almost seems to refuse to be who we want him to be, when, that he, when it appears that he might not be coming through for us. Jesus says, go and tell John, blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. All right, so there's the context. Jesus gets up. He reads this messianic text, right? This, this text of ancient hope and promise. And then he sits down. If the crowd was silent before, right, now you can hear a pin drop in this place. They are ready. They are ready to hear the hometown hero turn renowned rabbi to explain to them what it all means all the stuff he's been doing in Capernaum, the miracles they've all heard about, and how it relates to this famous text. They had some ideas, but they wanted to hear it from him. And so Jesus rolls the, script, the scroll back up. He, he hands it back over. He pulls up his robe as he reclines. Luke actually gives us great detail about this. Luke writes, then he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine? And by the way, th there's the sermon, one sentence. Can you imagine? Today, the kingdom of heaven is no longer a distant hope. It's not something that happens when you die. It begins Today, at least in part, it will unfold later, but it begins now. And everybody's just stunned. And I'd imagine maybe one guy in the crowd breaks the silence with kind of a testosterone fold. Yeah! And then all the fists go up, right? Yeah, yeah! This is it! This is the one we've been waiting for. It's the one we hoped for. This is the one we wanted. I mean, he's exactly what we were hoping he was going to be. In fact, he's even better. He's ours. He's from Nazareth. Not only is Israel now finally going to win, Nazareth is going to be at the center of the great victory of our people. Luke says that all spoke well of him, and they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? 
Now, later on, that question about being Mary and Joseph's son would be used to disparage Jesus. Later on, his claim to be the fulfillment of the scriptures would wind up getting him in lots of trouble, but not now. Not now. Now there is hope and joy and raucous expectation for all that was about to happen for them. Jesus' audience then, like the audience this morning, they, they, like we do, they had a grid, like we have a grid, through which they interpreted the scriptures. A filter, a preconceived notion, a way of understanding the text. All of their lives, they had assumed that they were the chosen people, that, that they were the good and the moral and the law-abiding, hard-working, right, Bible-believing, law-obeying people. They went to church, they tried to obey God, but they were under the thumb of bad people, always under the thumb of the bad people, the, the immoral people, the heretics, the foreigners. But someday the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to lead them to great triumph over all the bad people. We're the people, they thought, that need saving. We're the good guys that need a savior to save us from the bad guys. We're the ones to whom the Messiah is going to be sent. We are the poor. We've been waiting for this news. They think, they assume that they're the oppressed and, and they're the prisoners that need freeing. And amidst all of the high fives and the chest bumping, Jesus realizes they don't get it at all that they're all about to miss him too. How does he know? You're going to see this in the coming weeks over and over and over again. But, but Jesus knows something about the kingdom of God. And it's that when the kingdom of God comes, it's almost always met by good and moral and decent people with anger and offense. They're almost never happy when the kingdom of God comes. It's not met with cheers and high fives. We're going to see it over and over in the coming weeks, but the gospel is always offensive to good, religious, pious people who tend to think, not all of them, but most of them, right, who tend to think that, that the gospel is their reward for being as good as they are. In fact, as we gather this morning, isn't this us? Here we are, gathered in the church again, and we are good people, aren't we? Hardworking, God-fearing, church-going, Bible-reading, Jesus-fish-on-the-bumper people. We might miss Jesus' message, too, because at some level, what was true for them is true for us. Because if the gospel, if the gospel has never bothered you, if the gospel has never disappointed you, if the gospel has never offended you, right? Remember what John said, or Jesus said to John, if the gospel's never made you stumble, then you're either a better man than John the Baptist, and Jesus said there were none, or there's a good chance you've never really heard it. So back to the story, all of the high fives and the chest bumping and the, and the, the fist pumping and the roaring and the, is going on, and my guess is now that Jesus... He watches it, and he sees it, and he knows they're not getting it. And so he rises from his rabbinic chair, and he stands up, and, 
it kind of gets the attention of the crowd again, and he begins to speak. And this is where the story and their story, and I would argue maybe our story, takes an unexpected, unwanted twist. Jesus said to them, surely you're going to quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you're going to tell me, do here in your hometown what we heard that you did in Capernaum. And, I mean, you can imagine what their answer is, right? Well, Jesus, now that you mention it, of course we are. Why wouldn't we, right? We heard all about it, the blind and the deaf and the sick, right? All being healed up. If you did that in Capernaum, we can only begin to imagine what you have in store for us. To which I would tell you that, no, they could not imagine what he was about to have in store for them. He's about to explain to them who the sick and the blind and the deaf and the poor really are. And they are not going to like it. In fact, they're going to lose it. To do this, he reaches back in the history of his people. And he goes to a couple of stories um, that will help them to understand, much to the chagrin, who the poor are that he came for. And, and to get Jesus, friends, you really have to understand this. You have to understand who he's coming for, whom the gospel, to whom the gospel is good news. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, Elijah was one of Israel's great prophets, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land, and yet... Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Starts with a story that they're familiar with about their prophet Elijah. Tim Keller does such a wonderful job expanding on this point about the plight of this woman, this widow in Zarephath. This prophet of God, it's a time of drought, famine is sent not to, um, well, famine is sent to all of the widows in Israel. But the prophet is not sent to any of the widows in Israel, but to a widow in Zarephath. The widow in Zarephath was a Gentile. She was an idol worshiper. She was a heretic. She was poor. She was a woman, a bad combination in the first century. She is on the outside of both religious standards and the cultural elites. She has no pull, no clout, no political standing, no power, and no rights. By all Jewish religious standards, she is not living the right kind of life. She is not believing the right kind of things. She is a complete spiritual and moral outcast. Jesus goes on. And, you might remember, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, and yet not one of them was cleansed. Only name in the Syrian. It's another historical story. It's another prophet sent to the poor, but this time not to the poor in the way we think of it. Jesus chooses this story so we don't make the mistake to think that he's only here for people that don't have a lot of money. Because Naaman was quite well off financially and quite well off politically. He had great power. He was the commander of all of the Syrian army. It was a force that terrified the people of Israel. He was not only an enemy of the people of Israel, he was a pagan and an idol worshiper. In fact, rabbinic tradition holds that he was a murderer. He is the immoral enemy of the people of Israel. He does not set captives free. He takes captives. 
And yet, there were plenty of people in Israel with leprosy. The prophet of God is sent to cure Naaman the Syrian. Is this bothering anybody yet? Why? Because Jesus is trying to show them that the poor the gospel is good news for is not merely limited to the financially poor. The widow was poor, Naaman was rich. The, the, the poverty Jesus is trying to teach them about is something very foreign to them. And it's something very foreign to, to you and me. It's a poverty of spirit. They were both moral and religious outcasts. In fact, again, wonderful insight from Tim Keller on this. There is almost, he argues, an exclusivity to what Jesus is saying to these people. He goes, look, there were plenty of, these are the wording. He uses many twice. There were plenty of poor widows in Israel. There were many people with leprosy in Israel. And you know how many of them God chose? None. There were plenty of good people in Israel. God chose a bad person. There were plenty of people in Israel who believed the right thing, that went to synagogue on the weekends, that read their Bibles, that tried to, at their best to keep the laws. But the prophets went only to the widow in Zarephath and to Naaman the Syrian. Only to them. Why the exclusivity? Because Jesus is trying to hammer home a point you will see over and over, over in the coming weeks. Only people... Only people who know they are spiritually outcast, spiritually poor, only people that come to a conclusion that they have nowhere to go and nothing to offer, only these people are who, to whom he is sent, to whom he has come for. Later, he would famously describe them as poor in spirit, that they'd be blessed in their mourning. Jesus is looking out at this crowd in front of him, a crowd not unlike the crowd that I'm looking out on, the crowd not unlike what I look in the mirror at. And he says, you might not be who I came for. A, comp a comparison, right, he would go on to draw again and again. In the very next chapter, I, I want you to see, this is a familiar theme for Jesus. It's offensive. The very next chapter in Luke, Jesus answered them, quote, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the people in front of them, they didn't see themselves as sinners. I mean, they knew who the sinners were, just like you and I know. I mean, we know we're not perfect, but listen, we're pretty good, right? They knew who the sinners were, too. It was the Romans, it was the Syrians, the Babylonians, it was the idol worshipers, the heretics, the Gentiles. They were the sinners. It was those people. The people that Jesus' audience couldn't stand that Jesus repeatedly says to them, in all of their religiosity and pride, which they didn't even know they had, I'm not here for you. You don't even think you really need me. I'm going over there for them. Now, the next line in the story is so powerful. It's so convicting to me. It's so heart-exposing again for me. Friends, what happens, maybe it's happening to you right now, when you realize that Jesus might not be for you what you want him to be? What happens when you realize that in all of your work and your striving and your effort that you can't, what happens when you realize finally you can't control God? That you can't get him to perform for you or get him to do what you want him to do? 
What happens when he refuses to be who you want him to be? Quote, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. You know what you do? You try to kill him. In one way or another. Write him off. Walk away. Deconstruct. It's like the school bus in my neighborhood, right? Jesus is available for everyone, but you're only getting on the bus if you think you need the ride. If you don't have a car of your own making, of your own effort, of your own righteousness. Because if you have your own car, you'll miss the bus. Not only will you miss the bus, if you have your own car, you're going to look at the bus and you're going to see the people on the bus and you're going to look at them with pure disdain. You want to see an adventure in missing the point? It's a somewhat famous story that I'm sharing with you this morning, and it concludes this way. Some of you know it. They chase Jesus out of town up to the cliff. By the way, you can see this spot. You can go to this place. It's just outside of Nazareth, as you would imagine it to be. It's now known as the Mount Precipice. Here's a picture of it from a jogging trail along the ridge. You see Nazareth set out below. They chase Jesus right up to this point, and Luke writes that... I mean, it's the whole synagogue is chasing him out of the town just at that moment, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, for me, this is the funny part because as many times as I've heard this story over the years, the only part I've ever heard people wonder about in this story is how Jesus walked right through them. That's all I've ever heard debated time and time again. Was he, like, teleported out? You know, did he, like, hover above them and, like... Were they all put into some kind of trance? This is what we wonder about. Nobody, though, ever wonders, well, wait a minute. Am I part of the poor and the sick and the broken and the, the leper? Am I part? Did he come for me? There are two signs in the story that will show you if you allow yourself to look that you might not be the kind of person that Jesus has come for. You, you might not be spiritually poor. I'm going to close with them because of the point of the story. The point of the story is not how Jesus got through the crowd. The first is simple. It has to do with what Jesus said to John the Baptist. Blessed is anybody who doesn't stumble on account of me. Here's what I, I would encourage you to do. Be honest. Look at your own heart. Think about this, right? When you can't, when you can't control God, when you can't get him to do what you want him to do, despite how you try, when, it, when, he, when God acts like he doesn't owe you anything, which is what Jesus was telling the crowd at one level or another, what do you want to do with him then? How do you feel about him? Because I, I know I can be just like everyone in the crowd. I can be rich in good works and good deeds. I can go to church every week. I can be morally good. I can be on the right side of every single issue. I can read my Bible. I can have my devotions. And yet, when the God that is behind every one of these things shows up and goes, yeah, I'm not doing what you want me to do. I, I really don't owe you anything, John. 
there's something inside every one of us that goes, then I'm not sure I want anything to do with you. It's really easy to miss Jesus. You know the story. You, you've seen it before. It's a famous story, the prodigal son, right? There are two ways. Jesus shows this over and over, two ways to miss God, two ways to disobey God. You have the younger son. He goes off in the story and just outright disobeys. He takes his father's inheritance. He wishes him dead, and he spends it on wild living. He is the most spiritually, social, moral outcast on the face of the earth. And yet, he winds up in a place of complete poverty by his own making and choosing broken in disrespair, and he actually has nothing, nothing. And he comes back to his father completely empty-handed. And you know what the father does? Throws him a wild party. But there is in that story, it's funny how we like to focus on that son, there is in the story an older son who at one point says, I've never done any, I've never disobeyed you. And when the father welcomes the son home, the spiritual outcast, the bad guy, the good son seethes in anger. Because the father's doing what he doesn't want him to do. The father doesn't act like he wants him to act. The older son somehow feels like the father should be indebted to him for all that he's done for him for over all of these years. Friends, look at your heart, because if you don't, you really could miss Jesus. I'll close with the second sign that, that you might not be, at least heart-wise, the kind of person Jesus came for. The bus comes for everyone. Not everybody gets on. When Jesus read from the scroll from Isaiah, it was a messianic prophecy. He actually, and you and I don't know this because our moms and dads didn't put us to bed waiting for this Messiah, he actually quits reading right in the middle of the last sentence. He just stops. Something that they would have understood because they knew the passage. You and I miss it. Here's how the passage actually ends. It, it goes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and this is the piece Jesus just stops. He doesn't read this. And the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus was telling them that in his coming, at least in this coming, in this first coming, he has not and is not in this coming bringing the day of God's vengeance. In fact, in this coming, he has not come, he has come not as our example, but as our substitute to receive on himself God's vengeance, to take it for us. He comes, as you'll see quite famously, right, to not judge anyone, but to take upon him the judgment due everyone. Jesus comes not with a sword in his hands, but with nails in them. What you need to see is that everyone in the synagogue that day, everyone in the synagogue that day had no interest in grace. They didn't think they needed it. They wanted vengeance. They wanted to win. They wanted to get even, to get back, to bring retribution. They wanted everyone else to get what it was that they were due. The thought of the people that Jesus was saying he was here for made them sick. We'll get into it next week, where he begins to call his disciples, and he starts with a tax collector. Friends, if the thought of Jesus coming to save all the people that you can't stand, the immoral, the indecent, the ones with no class or no power or no prestige, the social and the moral outcasts, if that thought bothers you, if you look at the bus and you think there is no way I'm getting on that bus, do you know what they're doing in the back seats? I'll just take my own car. I'll make my own way. 
there's a good chance you're going to miss the bus. And it's actually going to turn out to be the unforgivable sin after all. And so, what do we do with this message? How do you respond? Maybe for the first time in your life, you have to go, holy smokes, I might be in big trouble. You really have nothing to offer God. He doesn't need to do anything for you. He owes you nothing. You, you and I, and this is hard. Like, we got we to put it all down. Our, our pride, our trophies, our demands, our expectations, our self-sufficiency. We have to stop thinking that we're so good and so right. And you come poor. You come needy. You come without any expectation, with no agenda. You come knowing that I, I really have nothing to offer you. Jesus would go on to say, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. What do I do? You come like a child in total and complete dependence and weakness. And here's the crazy irony of the gospel. This is the gospel, friends. If you do it, you will receive back riches beyond your wildest dreams. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The kingdom starts right now. But whatever you do, don't miss the bus. Let's stand and close this song.